Mindfulness Mode 186. The faster a person moves towards their goals, the slower time will go for them. Hey, Mindful Tribe, so good to have you with us again. Last time I featured Danny Sunshine Bauer, a.k.a. Daniel Bauer. He's passionate about helping you become a better leader. In fact, he's a school principal who inspires his teachers to be amazing leaders. Check out Danny on episode 185 if you missed it. Something else, I've mentioned before about a terrific upcoming event in Orlando, Florida called PodFest Multimedia Expo. I'll be there speaking on how mindfulness can help podcasters. So if you have any interest in this, check out the website at podfest.org. The ticket price of the event is increasing on January 31st. So if you have any interest in podcasting at all, check out the website, buy a ticket or two, and be sure to come up and meet me. I'd love to meet you at the event. Today, Mindful Tribe, I have a writer on the show, and he's not just a writer. He's he's a pretty interesting guy. He's studied psychology and is still studying it. He's used mindfulness and meditation to help him move forward in everything he does. He's done some really interesting research. He's an expert, at least I would certainly call him an expert, on time and thought that goes around the very complex subject of time. So I think you'll enjoy this episode with Benjamin Hardy. So sit back, relax, and just take it all in. Okay, Mindful Tribe, I am really excited to talk about our topic today. I am, I'm really happy to have Ben Hardy with us. Are you in mindfulness mode, Ben? Absolutely. Great. Ben Hardy is into time. He's into the study of time, and he has written a book about time hacking. And he's also an expert at the topic of mindfulness. And so I'm very fascinated about how mindfulness and time and the way we look at and consider the passing of time, how that all interacts and weaves itself together. So what does mindfulness actually mean to you, Ben? Mindfulness is basically being aware of your context. So being aware of the situation around you and also recognizing changes in that context. So if you're sitting in a car or if you're around other people, being aware of kind of the cues, the emotions, the vibes, and if things are changing. If you're in that situation, I know with my son, for instance, he can look at this as it may seem like forever, to him that we have to ride in the car and we have to wait for a red light or whatever it is and we're on the on our way to take him somewhere but at the same time we get to that red light and the way I look at it is hey that's that's a break that's a time for me to just completely relax it's almost like a luxury how do we share these different ways to deal with time with each other so that other people kind of get the concept yeah so um I think part of that is social intelligence, uh, being aware of what your son's experiencing. That's part of mindfulness, um, maybe some discernment and perhaps rather than forcing him to feel the way you feel, trying to better understand how he's feeling, trying to share an experience. So I think a lot of it just has to do with actually being mindful of the other person and what right. they're feeling. 
Well, I think the thing is, if we are truly mindful, then we're not going to try to shove this attitude on to somebody else. Do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think you're open to experiences. I think that that's part of mindfulness um, and trying to understand what's going on, but also an aspect of mindfulness is actually having a higher state of discernment about the situation as well. So you're, you kind of know what, what's going on with your son. You're able to direct in whatever way you want how he's feeling and trying to have a shared experience. And you're a foster dad and you have three children that you, that you are parenting. Tell me about some of the things that you do with them that you would consider mindfulness tools or mindfulness techniques. Um, I think a lot of it is just being aware. Uh, so our kids sometimes just given the nature of them being foster kids, sometimes their emotions can be a little up and down. And so being aware of where they're at is one component, but also if they're down, you know, recognizing that and then understanding how to connect with them and how to pull them out or just how to create a certain experience. You know, if you, if like, for example, my, our daughter today, she's going to go have a visit with her parents today, like a, a department of social service supervised visit. And on these days she kind of gets out of whack. Like it just, it kind of throws her off understandably. So, and so we could just tell this morning before school that she was kind of out of it. And so mm-hmm. part of being mindful is obviously not being caught up in social media and just walking through the day, but actually like being present to the situation, recognizing that things are going wrong and understanding why, and then understanding how to create a helpful solution. So part of her needs are that she's, she has a high need for physical touch. And so what we did was, you know, I just grabbed her and said, Hey, do you want me to spin you around? Cause she likes when I grab her. And so I grabbed her, held her tight kind of like to kind of help her feel some stability. And then we sp- spun around and she started laughing and then we just started joking around and it just kind of flipped things. It kind of flipped things for her. And so, I mean, that's just one thing is just kind of understanding the situation and how to help people if they're struggling or how to just connect to people on a higher level. Um, other ways are, I mean, I don't know, mindfulness can be applied in a million different ways, but I, I, I think a lot of it just has to do with connecting with people and being able to know where they're at. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it sounds like you connect with a lot of people. You do consulting and you're working on your PhD. Can you tell us about your PhD and, and specifically what you've been working on? Sure. Yeah. Um, so my PhD is in a field called organizational psychology. Uh, it's very similar to organizational behavior in the business field. We study motivation, leadership, training, all sorts of stuff, um, kind of like that. And so what I study in my PhD research, I've spent a lot of time studying the psychological differences between entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs. What's the difference between these two groups? Why do some people go for it and move forward and actually achieve what they want, whereas other people are kind of wannabes, never fully make it, never commit. And the study of those two different groups has led me to the discovery or maybe a further examination of a particular idea. And I call that idea the point of no return. So for a long time, I was studying the differences between these two groups. And I found that there was mostly 
two big differences between these two groups. The actual entrepreneurs scored way higher on their levels of goal commitment. So they were higher, way more committed to entrepreneurship than the wannabes. But then the more interesting thing, in my opinion, was that a lot of these entrepreneurs had exp- had experienced what they would call point of no return experiences, whereas the, uh, the wannabe entrepreneurs did not have those experiences. And so the point of no return is basically the moment when moving forward towards your goal is actually easier than going back. So it's when you put yourself in a situation where you're almost forced to go forward. That could be quitting your job. It could be just having a shift in your mental space. Um, but essentially, it's it's the moment when going back to what you were doing is either impossible or it's no longer desired. So you put yourself in a situation where you almost have to go forward. And it often creates a self-fulfilling prophecy where you put yourself in a situation, whether you buy a lot of shoes, you know, like one of the people I uh, interviewed about point of no return was a young like 17 year old entrepreneur and he said his point of no return experience was when he realized well when a huge shipment of shoes he purchased i think he bought like 500 shoes to sell was sitting out was sitting outside his house and at that moment he realized that like he was all in and that he had to he had to go forward like he had to sell the shoes and at that moment like it changed his perspective of himself. It changed how he viewed himself. At that moment forward, he saw himself as a leader. And so there's this moment where you put yourself in a situation where you almost have to go forward. And I like that. I like putting myself in situations where it forces me to show up on a higher level. Um, I do too. I do I mean, too. I totally resonate with that. So that's kind of the main thing I study, and I try to apply it in a lot of different areas. Um, becoming a foster parent its just one area. Like... Did I know how to parent before I became a foster parent? No, but like taking on three foster kids put me in a situation where it kind of forced me to learn. Um, right. Consulting high-level clients, you know, like I, I started consulting business owners, charging high fees, like before I really knew how to coach and just taking on clients forced me to figure out how to do it. And so uh, that's kind of my view of what the point of no return is. And that's pretty much the main thing I'm studying at this point in my PhD. That's really fascinating. And you're also studying aspects of time and how time passes. Tell us about that. Um, well, I think, I think uh, just given the interest in performance, psychology, and success, a natural aspect of that is studying productivity. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of books on productivity, a lot of great ones, and people are very interested in productivity and how to get the most out of their time, how to be effective. I mean, it's a very hot topic these days and it's very interesting to me as well. I, I want to be successful. I want to get a lot done. I want to achieve a lot in my life. And so from the perspective of getting a lot done, that's one way of looking at time that I've thought about. But as a psychologist, I've looked at time in a lot of different ways as well. Um, mostly thinking about it from like a therapeutic perspective. So uh, when someone goes into like a therapy session a lot of times they're fo- trying to explore their past and why they're having certain emotional experiences. They look at past traumas and things like that. And from a psychological perspective, we don't look at time necessarily as the past, the present, and the future are three separate things, and that you're living in the past, or that you're living in the present, that you're moving towards the future, and that your past is behind you. From a perceptual, like from a psychological perspective, you can actually be living in the past, or you can be living in the future. 
all of those three things are actually more interconnected. And so from that perspective, you can actually change your past. You can change the meaning of your past um, and how you perceive it, which can then alter your present, shape your future. Um, so from that perspective, time is a lot more fluid. Yes. And, um, and then I got really into time relativity after watching Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar and just trying to understand how time relativity works. And so from my, basically the basic definition of time relativity is that the faster an object moves through space, the slower time moves. Once an object, like let's just say a planet or a solar system gets to the speed of light, then time stops altogether. And so kind of taking all of these ideas and forming them together and looking at productivity I've written a book, it's called Slipstream Time Hacking, and I basically play with a lot of ideas in science fiction, but also like astrophysics and psychology, and I talk about how the faster a person moves towards their goals, the slower time will go for them. I'm totally fascinated with this, and and you said the name of your book really fast. It's called Slipstream Time Hacking, and it's just a just as you describe a very different way to look at time and, and, and so on. So how can you slow down your perception of time or speed it up if you want to? Yeah. I don't think anyone should want to speed it up. I don't either, but it's fascinating to think of it. Well, so here's an interesting thing. There's a movie called click. I don't know if you've uh-huh. seen it, but it's uh, it's, it's an Adam Sandler movie. And basically right. he, he has a remote control where he can fast forward time if he wants. Right. I did see that movie. Yes. And so basically that's how a lot of people pursue their life is they try to fast forward all the parts, you know, and like, so he's like, he wants to like fast forward his life until he gets his raise and he realized he fast forwarded a decade uh, yes. and, he re- and he realizes at the end of his life that he only had like six quality minutes in his life. So the purpose of this book is actually to situate your life so that you're getting way more out of your life. So the average American, I think they take like 10 or 12 days off you know, 10 or 12 day business days off. And, uh, we, we, uh, my wife and I, we do a lot of couch surfing, which is basically just a website where you can allow people to come and stay at your house for free, or you can leave the country and go stay at people's houses. Well, we had a kid stay at our house while I was writing that book and he had, he quit his job and he had spent the last eight months couch surfing. And, uh, so basically he took 32 days 32 days off work that year. And uh, if you compare the amount of time he spent doing exactly what he wanted to do versus what the average American does, like let's just say the average American doesn't enjoy their job uh, yes. and, and they have, let's just say, two weeks. They have two weeks off a week and it's during those two weeks that they actually are quote-unquote living. The rest of their time they're just trying to get through it. Well, if you compare the average American's two weeks compared to this this kid's 32 weeks, it would take the average American 16 years to live as much life as this kid just did in eight months. Wow. Because most of the other people are just trying to speed through life. And so in my opinion, this kid just traveled, you know, looking at time relativity, this kid just traveled 16 years distance in eight months. He just lived 16 years worth of most Americans life, but he captured it all in eight months. Another just funny example is I had a a professor in my undergrad who was telling me that he had the dream of, you know, him and his wife wanted to go to Hawaii. Um, But realistically, that probably won't happen for 10 or 15 years because they're they're raising kids, like he's busy, like taking a full-on trip like Hawaii, 
most people don't do that every single year. Most people, that's like a big, like once a decade, maybe once a lifetime trip. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes, and I do. And so from a time relativity perspective, Hawaii for this guy is his goal, which is 15 years away. And so uh-huh. how I would look at 15 years is rather than looking at it as time, I would look at it as, look at it as a distance. It's 15 years distance away. But if he was to fold that time in half, and get there in seven years, if he could figure out a way to rather than take 15 years to get there, to get there in seven, then he would have effectively saved himself seven years. He would have also slowed time down. Or if he could figure out how to get there in one year, then he would save himself 14 years. Same, tra- same distance traveled, just, just moving a lot faster. And when you do that, you actually slow yourself some time. You could live as much time in one year as you might have lived in 15. So there's just some, some different ways of looking at it. Just the last example, I know this is kind of going a little far, but a lot of people look at time as money. And yes. so like I have a friend who, you know, he's got a full-time job, maybe works like 50 hours a week. What he really loves doing is spending time with his kids. His problem is though, is, is that these guys keep up with the Joneses. Like he's got super nice cars, you know, they probably have 60 to $80,000 worth of vehicles. You know, they've got like two really nice Suburbans and things like that. They live in a really nice house, and so they're in debt. But rather than thinking about it in in terms of money, like rather than thinking about, let's just say my friend makes sixty grand a year, uh, yeah. and he's and he's he uh, you know he's got eighty thousand dollars worth of cars. Well, rather than eighty thousand dollars worth of cars, he's got like over a year's worth of time at work that he would have to spend paying for those cars. It's it's more a matter of time than money, because you have to look right. at the value of your your time. So if my friend makes 60 grand a year and he has to spend all of his time away from his family in order to pay for these cars, his house, all of these things, if he would just minimize a little bit and have like, let's just say a $5,000 car, that would save him so much time because he wouldn't have to spend all of his time away earning money for those vehicles. Instead, he would have maybe less stuff, but he would have more time. Yeah, exactly. And so the stuff is very, very expensive, really, because when you think of it in terms of time, it's way more expensive than it is in terms of money. Well, he doesn't think about maybe the fact that he just bought a car. It it maybe rather than thinking, well, this car just cost me 40 grand. Maybe he should really be thinking this car is costing me a year away from my kids. Right. Yeah, I see that. That's that's a really cool way to think of it. And I think, you know, when you relate it to mindfulness, I think that, you know, mindfulness is about living now, living in the now, and you're really, you're really bargaining away that time, that now. Yeah. Doing that. And I think the only way to really live in the now is to try to slow it down as much as you can. Like, it's not necessarily about literally slowing it down. It's about actually having the experiences you want. Like if I could, you know, if, if quote unquote, truly living for me is being with my kids, but my life is situated where I only get five or 10 minutes with them a day, then that's not really being present or that's having like 10 minutes of true presence. But if I could set my life up so that I'm being with my kids five hours a day, then that Mm -hmm. means that like the amount of present moments where I'm fully engaged and fully engrossed is extremely more. And so I think mindfulness is important to live in the now, but I think you want to set your life up so that you're fully engrossed in the now as much as you possibly can be. For me, that's how you slow time down. And for most people, I think their time's going fast because they're not actually living in the present. They're not doing what they want. They're trying to get to the future. They're trying to get to the weekend or to retirement. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the powers of mindfulness and why so many people are seeking this. Once they start to realize what mindfulness can do for you, then a lot more people want to do it and they want to have that in their life. So so tell us some more ways we can do this. I mean, we have to first examine what it is that we really want in our life. We have to make sure that we've identified that. And I think a lot of people have not. Do you agree? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think mindfulness is essential in that category because in order to be mindful, you have to kind of slow things down. You also have to disconnect in a lot of ways. And so I think a a primary reason people don't know what they want or even who they are and what they want to become is because they don't have enough time to step back. You know, so Stephen Kotler, he wrote the book, The Rise of Superman, and it's all about flow. And I Mindfulness and flow can go together or flow state where you're fully absorbed in the moment. And he talked about how your intuition is always talking to you, but most of the time you can't hear it. And the only way to hear it is to give yourself lots of time to be by yourself disconnected. And so I think a big part of mindfulness is actually first off being aware that you're actually totally in a state of distraction and then giving yourself adequate space perhaps in healthy, rich environments where you can actually connect with yourself. If you can pull yourself away from your distractions and even your work and life for a day and just give yourself a complete unplugged day just to yourself, whether just to write in your journal, to listen to good books, to listen to you know good music, even maybe just to be with family, no internet, no connection, no, no phone even. Just unplug yourself from the grid for a bit I think if you give yourself a little bit of space, you can begin to hear that intuitive voice, which would then inform you about what it is you actually want in life. Tony Robbins said that the only place you should make big decisions is when you're in a peak state. Uh, and most people don't get in peak states because they're they're just caught up in kind of the mundane distraction of reality. There's a way enough to actually be mindful, to actually connect with their inner voice. Once you give yourself the space, it's actually pretty easy to discover what it is you actually want. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I, I meditate every day and I journal every day. And that's what I do is what you describe. I answer those two questions. Who am I and what do I want? That's one way that we can feel our intuition. Are there other ways that you can tell us about? Oh, yeah, definitely. The primary triggers of going into a flow state, which, like I said, I think it's highly connected with mindfulness is putting yourself in novel situations where you have to like really begin to think it absorbs you in the moment doing service for other people pulls you out of yourself and allows you to connect with the moment which ironically allows you to connect more with yourself like you said journaling journaling is a big one reading good books being with people i i think a big a big reason people can't be mindful honestly and i've already mentioned this is that they're too connected to the internet so for me, I have, I have clear borders. I don't check email or social media before 11 a.m. And like my morning time, like going running, for example, running in the morning, I think, or running whenever you run, they call it the runner's high because that's kind of a state of flow. It, it, it opens up your mind, and I think that's a way to be mindful. But just giving yourself a lot of space. I don't think we need access to our phones more than a few hours a day. There should be windows of time when we connect with other people. And that way, a lot of us, our work, I mean, it depends on your job. Yeah. But for a lot of us, our job is to sit in front of computers and 
do certain tasks, you know, like you don't need to be always available during that time. And I think when you go away from work, you need to unplug completely. And, and I mean, some people's jobs, that's not realistic. And I get that. But for most people, they just kind of live in an endless state of kind of being connected. And I think when you leave work, you just leave it alone and you're fully with your people at home, just fully engaged in the small and simple things, eating food, playing games, like doing things in the actual real world. Those are ways that you can actually heighten your perception of reality and heighten your perception of the moment, which essentially is mindfulness. Yeah, I really like that. I really like that. And it sounds like you have a lot of suggestions along those lines in your book. Definitely. Yeah, Benjamin, I've worked in uh, bullying prevention for some time, and a practice of mindfulness can really help children or adults to look at bullying differently, look at life differently, so that they're not so affected by bullying. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness could have made a huge difference? I was slightly bullied as a child. Uh, I'm not, I can't really think of one for myself, but I'm just thinking mm-hmm. about being in a situation where you're bullied in general. I think mindfulness allows you to look at the situation a little bit bigger. So kind of from a systematic per, like perspective, you have to realize that you're part of a situation and that you influence that situation. Obviously, bad things can happen to good people outside of their control. But yes. like when you when you look at your life as you're part of a context, like you are part of a you are part of a situation. You are you are one part of a whole. And when you change the part, you simultaneously change the whole. Right. And so I think taking responsibility for the fact that you are part of the reason stuff is happening to you. Obviously, that right. that it's not cool when some some kid bullies you, you know, and right. maybe they're right. just doing it because they've got emotional problems. But when you look at your situation and you think about, all right, why is this kid doing this? Like, obviously. From a mindfulness perspective, you begin to start to think about who is this person? Why are they treating me this way? And then trying to discern how you can shift shift the relationship you have with your bully. You know what I mean? Like, yes. Whether it, I mean, so that's kind of what mindfulness is, is starting to look at the situation and what are the causes? What are the, what are the things going, what is going on here? What's this, what is this real situation that I'm in? And how can we... How can we manipulate the situation? Uh, you know, there's a few different strategies you can implement. Obviously, you could just avoid the bully, which is one way to manipulate the situation. Or you can try to understand the bully. Or you can try to, you know, make friends with them. Or you can try to get other people to help you confront this bully. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can go about it. But I think trying to understand the situation better, trying to understand why this person is treating you this way and trying to come up with thoughtful ways of understanding this person, reconnecting with them in a different and more healthy way. Right. I don't know. That may have been way too theoretical, but I think so much of it is how you are perceiving the situation and why your emotions are going where they are. And through mindfulness, you know, like we can start to look at that yeah, I think that in this situation, most people are over, overtly concerned about themselves. Um, yes. And if you can just take a second to think about the bully, you know what I mean? Or, mm-hmm. you know, if you are the bully, then to take, you know, you're probably doing it out of some need to overcome some pain you're feeling or just for entertainment, whatever it may be. But if you can take a couple seconds to take the 
to take the uh, attention off of yourself and onto the other person. So if you're the victim starting to think about why is this person doing this? You know, what is it that they need? What is the emotional value that they're getting out of injuring me? Like they're doing it to fulfill an emotional gap or just to experience an emotion, whether that be enjoyment. But I think a lot of it's just taking the energy off yourself, as you've mentioned, and thinking about the other person. And when you can do that, perhaps you can easily shift the relationship talk to them in a different way, approach it in a, in a different way. Yeah, for sure. No, I totally agree. Benjamin, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Definitely Ellen Langer. In my opinion, she's the number one researcher on the subject of mindfulness. Her books, her research, all spot on. I think it's the most high quality stuff. I think there's a lot of garbage out there on the topic of mindfulness. I think it can be a highly watered down subject. But Ellen Langer's work, she's been studying mindfulness since the 70s. She's a Harvard psychologist. Her work is by far the best. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? I think mindfulness is a way to emotionally regulate. In other words, it's a way to be aware of your own emotions so that then you can decide what to do with them. Well, and another way is actually, uh, if you've read uh, Michael Singer's work, he's written the book called The Untethered Soul. Uh, Yes. So I think mindfulness, a big part of it's just being aware of your emotional blocks, your suppressed emotions, your repressed emotions beginning to look at your life and saying, why is it this way? Am I living this way because I'm trying to protect myself from feeling emotions like fear or shame? Uh, And so being mindful of why why you're avoiding particular emotions. Uh, Because a lot of people live way smaller than they want to. They're trying to avoid certain emotions, like fear, for example. If someone has the dream of becoming a professional writer, for example, but they're too afraid to put their work out there, then their life is set up in a way that they're trying to avoid that emotion. And so part of emotional regulation is being willing to experience the dark emotions. Another part is trying to understand your emotions better so that you can more healthily live. And I think mindfulness is essential to both of those. Yeah, I agree. I really enjoy Michael Singer's work also. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. I don't think that I use mindfulness the exact same way everyone does as far as Mm -hmm. like, direct meditation where I have breathing exercises that I actually don't spend as much time on that one. My, my form of meditation is more in the form of journal writing and running. That's how I meditate. Um, and even prayer. So breathing for me is not one I use as much, although it probably should be. Well, everybody's different. And I find that some people, really resonate with running or journal writing just as you've described and maybe you can expand a little bit more on the running and mindfulness well i just think when you're running you get into what they call the runner's high which is flow which is a heightened sense of consciousness and so you know when you take the time to run you become more self-aware you become aware of your thoughts your goals your interests your desires you know and so for me when i'm running And it often takes about 20 or 30 minutes to get into that state where your mind begins to slow down. Often it's still just thinking. Maybe you're thinking about how your body feels or thinking about what you got to do for the rest of the day. But after about 15, 20, 30 minutes, your mind begins to slow down and you begin to get more absorbed in the in the event of just running. And that's where I think you start to get some insight into what it is you want. Like Tony Robbins said that he doesn't necessarily meditate for him. He doesn't want to think about nothing for him. He's looking for clarity. And so for me, that's essentially the purpose of quote unquote meditation is to get clarity. 
And so that's that's why I enjoy running is because when you're deep into a run, a lot of kind of just the busyness of life fades away and you begin to think about things. I mean, that's that's how I decided, you know, to change my life when I was 18 or 19 years old. I had barely graduated high school, but, you know, I grew up in a really rough situation. My father was a meth addict and like my life was just kind of messed up. And my escape from that was running. And I did that after I graduated high school. And it was when I was doing really long runs that I finally decided to like confront some of the issues that I had been dealing with, that I had been suppressing. Like a lot of the feelings I'd been suppressing, I I was able to finally confront myself because I gave myself enough time with myself to think rather than distracting myself in video games and things like that. And with friends, like being by myself and running allowed me to actually connect. And so it was during that, those long runs where I finally decided to shift my life and to actually pursue the things I really wanted to. And so that's kind of one of the main reasons why I do it. I'm glad I asked you that question because that really clarifies that. Now, you mentioned Ellen Linger. I was going to ask you, could you recommend a book on mindfulness? So I don't know if it's a book by her or what book would you suggest? Yeah, her book is called Mindfulness and it's a right. international right. bestseller and it's in my opinion, the best book on the subject. Right. I had a feeling you'd say that. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? I actually really don't use a lot of apps, to be fully honest with you. I try. I'm very simplistic. I'm very like, I write with a pen and a pad. The only, the main app I, so there's three apps that keep me unmindful and that's Twitter, Facebook, and uh, actually probably just those two. The app I use, and it's not specifically for keeping my life un focus, but I, I publish a lot on medium.com, you know, and I think that that's a way to become mindful is to have a practice of writing. And so, yes, interest. I mean, medium itself can be a huge distraction taking people from mindfulness, but I use it as just a form of writing and publishing my ideas. And for me, that enhances my mindfulness, but I don't have an app to like block out websites and stuff like that. Sure. No, I appreciate that. And just for our listeners, can you expand a little bit on what medium.com is? Medium.com is a social media site similar to Facebook and Twitter, but it's a platform where people can write blogs and then your blog posts go into news feeds and there's like top stories and stuff. And it's becoming one of the top publishing platforms in the world. Um, A lot of businesses have shifted all of their blogging onto Medium.com. Fortune Magazine is shifting all of their fortune. You know, so there's publications within Medium. And then there's just, you know, you can log in through your Twitter or Facebook and you can have your own profile like on Facebook and you can begin publishing and, you know, you have your own page. And so Medium is, it's a, it's been around for a few years, but it's becoming more and more important. And it's just, it's a place with really good high quality writing. There's less, there's less bars of entry. Anyone can publish on there and there's a lot more authentic writing. Yeah, it's a great spot, and I'm so glad that you expanded on it. So, Ben, tell Mindful Tribe how they can learn more about you and how we can get your book and just a little bit more how we can connect. Yeah, thank you. So if you go to medium.com, I'm actually probably top three writers on that platform right now. And so you can find me there just typing in Benjamin Hardy or a lot – most of the time, I've got an article in the top stories. So medium.com is one way. BenjaminHardy.com uh, is another way. That's just Benjamin and then Hardy. My last name spelled H-A-R-D-Y. 
And yeah, I mean, basically, if you subscribe to my newsletter, I give away two free ebooks. One is Slipstream Time Hacking, which we've been talking about, which is all about how to fully live in the present, slow your time down, and get where you want to go faster. Uh, I also give away a free ebook about how I've built my platform. It's all about my process of writing and my perspectives on writing and the psychology I believe is needed to achieve any goal. And uh, in that book, I talk about the strategies I've used to go from zero to 55,000 email subscribers in a little over a year. So I give away both of those ebooks when people subscribe to my blog. And then weekly, I write articles on point of no return or commitment or, you know, whatever it is I'm thinking about at the time. Awesome. Well, it's been really great talking and Mindful Tribe. I know you've learned a lot from this, this interview. So thanks so much for being with us, Ben. Yeah, I hope anything I said made sense. <laughs> <laughs> it really makes sense. It's really, really great insight. Thanks again. You have a great rest of your day. All right. Hey, thank you as well, Bruce. Have a good day. You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.